to the BHL podcast series. I'm your host, Scott Heidner, and it is my delight today to have as my guest State Representative Chris Croft, who represents the 8th House District, and as of a few weeks ago, was also elected House Majority Leader for the 2023 and 2024 Kansas Legislative Sessions. Representative Croft, thanks so much for being here. Scott, thanks for having me on. Well, we've been excited to have you on the show and uh, get a chance to visit with you. And as listeners know, we we really are on this show not as much focused on the, the political and the policy side so much as, you know, getting to know the person that's going to be playing such a large role in the policy arena for all of our clients and and colleagues, and as we always do, let's rewind the tape all the way back to the very beginning. Tell listeners where you were born and grew up and, and a little bit about your childhood and what a, an average day in, in the life of a young Chris Croft looked like. Well, I, I was born in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, <clears throat> and uh, grew up in Orlando. My mom was a, a college teacher at a community college, and uh, dad left when I was young, so mom it was just the two of us. I have no brothers or sisters. And so every day, you know, consisted of my mom made sure that I, you know, after school, I was in every sports program. I known at one point, I think I played on two football teams at the same time. So she just made sure she, that I had a lot of models around me, people around me that, you know, kind of gave me examples of the way she wanted me to be. Yeah. You, so. you appear to have avoided the CTE <laughs> despite being in two football leagues at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that the acronym for the, the yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Before you move any further, just out of curiosity, what did your mom teach? She taught basic skills, skills for mm-hmm. folks that uh, were trying to get a job, administrative assistance, things like that, how to typewrite. So that's why I can type. Yeah. I learned how to run the IBM typewriter that actually had a computer in it. Way back then, she didn't know how to do it, so I did it for her. I think I was eight years old. How funny. Came in and helped her teach the class. Yeah. And uh, that was a lot of fun. So she did a lot of those things, but that was the basic. And then she taught basic accounting and things like that. So We, we could have used Miss Croft right here at the Brayden Heidner Lowe, one of my very own partners who I won't name, but his initials are Travis Lowe. Still <laughs> types with two fingers, you know. He he could have benefited from being in, in Miss Croft's business typing right. class. Well, we'll have to work on him to that. <laughs> Anything I can use to mess with with young Travis, I would love to do it. Well, you you should light him up about that. But, oh, I will. But, but be fully warned, he is a borderline violently proud of the pace at which he types with two fingers. He's yeah. he's like the the undersized kid on the school ground that every time he gets challenged, he's like, "I'll fight you right now." He he's, he's like, "We'll sit down and have a type off. I bet I can type more words a minute than you can." Well, I've experienced him this last couple of years ago. Right? <laughs> Working with that licensing bill, yeah, I experienced his fight. So, uh, well, yeah. back on back on your youth, what? So a lot of sports, obviously, you already talked about. But what uh, what were your other hobbies as a, a kid, and what filled your time? Well, you know, just being outside playing. That that was what I I, I would stay out till well past dark with the kids. We'd play, kick the can. We we'd get on skateboards, go down the street. In fact, I just recently went back to my road that I lived on and been 25 years, that road is so much shorter than I remember. It seemed like it was really long when I was a kid, but boy, it's, it's kind of short. Yeah. But no, that was what we did. We were out there all the time, hanging out with friends and 
And and then occasionally, then when I got older and mom needed me to come over there and help, and then I would sit around the back of the classroom and watch her teach and see that process. And, and actually, at the community college, Valencia Community College, they had a golf course, three holes, so they were teaching people how to play golf. That no was kidding. one of their things. And so they yeah. let me go out there, and that's why I started playing golf, was because of that yeah. time when mom didn't have enough money to send me to, you know, daycare or anything else or be, have somebody watch me. I went out there and hung out oh, and, and those things. So yeah, it was kind of neat. It is a business skill. It probably well, is a skill. That's I mean, for sure. it is. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a. Wish I was better at it though. Yeah. You and me both. <laughs> well, this is going to make us both sound heinously old, but I'm going to say it anyway. You know, we grew up in the era where it literally was go make your own fun. Right. You know? Oh yes. That, there's the door. Sun is shining. Go find something to do. Absolutely. Know? Yeah. Uh, bicycles into the in the woods and Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so let's transition. You're going into high school, maybe getting to the age where you have to think about what comes next. What were your ambitions then? Did you an aspiration in your late high school of what you wanted to do? And then what did you end up doing post graduation? Yeah, so in high school I, I again I I transitioned over to golf and I did play in the band a lot and you know, wanted to be, you know, maybe thought about that. It was not really that good. So I realized that wasn't going to work. That doesn't stop a lot of us. Well, that <laughs> wasn't that good. <laughs> so, that doesn't stop a let, lot of let's us. Let's put it that way. So I ended up, as I came out of high school, I wanted to go into, uh, I had a great physics teacher. I was in AP physics and he, he talked me into going to chemical engineering. So I thought that's kind of what I wanted to go down that path, being an engineer. Um, but, you know. Obviously, that didn't work out very well, but <laughs> as we go along in life, but that was the idea in high school. I, I tried to play baseball and obviously, y- you know, when it's your time, mm-hmm. those weren't my times. Football wasn't my time anymore. I'd done that for long enough and it was time to go on to do other things. And so I was really happy. I had really a lot of focus in that chemical area, chemistry area and the, and the physics. And so that's why I went down that path. Very cool. And yeah. so that path literally physically led to... Well, that path led me to the University of Florida, where I started my, my education, went into that area and realized how little I actually knew when I got there. I learned a little bit about how, you know, you need to be prepared for college and wasn't quite there, learned the value of maybe going back to a community college. Mm-hmm. And then that's where I ran into the Army folks and uh, kind of got involved with that process. I really ran into a couple folks that, that brought me in and just kind of shepherded me in that pro- and going through applying getting accepted and then and how old were you at that time see i started college at 17 actually i started college at 15 because i went some night classes it went my mom she did that but so they weren't official but the the real start was at 17 so i think i was 18 when i signed a contract with the army with a with the army to yeah. go in uh, so i got a three and a half year scholarship to become an engineer in the army and you don't always get to do in the army what what your education <laughs> is right so I learned that going through the process, but, but I also didn't make it to the end of being an engineer. That's pretty tough business there. You know, pretty impressed with folks that managed to make it through, but I ended up in computer science was real, my real area that I liked. Very cool. So, well, give us that. So this next question will, you know, candidly is probably the bulk of the podcast because it was the, the vast bulk of your career. Give us the, to the extent you, you're legally able to and comfortable doing so give us the download of what you did your areas 
of service, your areas of specialty, you know, deployments. I know, you know, you've served overseas as well. Your your graduation through the ranks, graduation is wrong, your, your elevation and promotion through the ranks. Yeah, give us the, the outline of your career. Okay, now, how much time do we have? As no, much, no, as much time as you want. <laughs> so, you know, okay, so I stopped there. Now, I, we ended, I did not graduate from Florida. I ended up, you know, when I was 18, and this is something I could tell you later on. I'll finish the story later on. But when I was 18, I told my roommate, I said, the next girl I date, I'm going to marry. Oh, holy cow. And so I met my wife on the volleyball court because I played competitive volleyball. And I'm a setter. I can't jump. I literally can bar- barely get a piece of paper under my feet when I jump. I have never touched the net on a basketball court. <laughs> Not the rim, the net. I, I literally can't jump. And I met her, tried to get her to date me for a year. She finally dated me and I married her. And so when we got married, we decided to move down to Central Florida, back home, and we moved to, I went, finished my, my, my AA degree at community college, and then went to Central Florida, and that's where I graduated. Okay. All right. So we, in that transition, I met a great guy, his name is Peter Berry, and this is a guy, so like when I was a kid, you know, we had talked earlier, one of my first jobs I ever had was uh, I, I mowed lawns, and I was still mowing lawns all the way up into college. I also worked at Popeye's Fried Chicken. Outstanding. You know, I started there in the back, sweeping the floors, then prepared the chicken, then cooked the chicken, and then ran the, the drive-through. And it was one of the second most busy in the nation. And so we learned about processes and how you get things going. So it was, it was a great experience going through there. But as I went into this part of where we're at, you know, as I was mowing lawns, this one guy, one gentleman, again, Peter Berry, pulled me aside and said, hey, I'll pay you three hours for you to mow my lawn. It took 30 minutes. I'm like, yeah, this is great. But it makes some good money. What I didn't know was he was going to be the one of the very beginning mem- mentors for me throughout my entire career. So he, uh, so for 30 minutes, I mowed the lawn and then he'd go, okay, come on, let's sit down. I, I have, I've got two and a half more hours. And he'd say, okay, let's talk about it. what does it mean to be, you know, a husband? What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be? a military leader. And he took me through all these things and just kind of educated me and treated me like one of his own kids. Can I interrupt and ask yeah, you a question? Sure. Had you had you officially joined the Army at this point already? So I was still in ROTC at this okay. point. So, okay. And uh, so I was a college student, uh-huh. still going through, and he was part of the mentor program that we were supposed to have mentors to come out. And you know, I wasn't the best student. I wasn't the best cadet. I was married. We had a child. I was busy. I had four jobs at the time. So I was trying to just make ends meet and just get done with things. And this guy, for him to take that time, see something in me that I didn't see in myself, is something I've always wanted to give back and be able to do. And so, and that's the way it is, is I'm going to sit here and talk about through my career. That's what I've had all the way through my career. Every stop along the way, I can tell you about an individual that has taken the time to put me under their wings and said, hey, let's, let's talk about things and let me help you achieve. And it's my job to do that for others. And that's the way I've always believed. But so as I came in the army, didn't think I was going to be on active duty. There was a transition period where we had done a big military buildup and now we were doing a little bit of military down, right? And so I didn't get the active duty slot. I got a reserve slot <clears throat> and I didn't know. And all of a sudden now I've got to come back and have a job. So I got into computer science. I started my own computer programming company as well as I was in real estate. But then I had to go off to school for my ROTC to become an officer, right? So you get promoted or you get commissioned and then you have to go to school, your basic school, we'll call it. And for me, it was transportation officer, basic school. So I'm a transportation officer by trade. 
I love, in fact, my whole skill set through the time is strategic transportation. And so while we were there, they had an opportunity to win an active duty slot. And it was a competition. Make no, make no bones about it. It was, it was a tough competition. We had to go through the whole process. And so it came down to the last day. I was number three in the class in the numbers of, of, for the education numbers. And it came down to the interviews. And so there's a long story about that. We can cover another date. But at the end of the day, we won the active duty slot. And they said, where do you want to go? And I said, you know, I've never been out of the southeastern part of the United States. Never been on an airplane, I don't think. So, well, how about Europe? I'm like, that sounds great. <laughs> Europe. So, All right. Oh. So he said, well, now we don't have an exact assignment yet, so we're going to take a little bit of time. So I called Connie. She was down She was down in Florida, and I was up in Virginia for the school. And it was a, one of the only times in our career that we were actually separated from time and space just because I knew I was only there for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And I said, hey, you good with Europe? She goes, yeah, sounds good. We'll go. And I said, but they don't know anything for several months, so I've got to pick some schools. So I picked going to airborne school. Oh. Yeah, it sounded really cool at the time. <laughs> I just didn't realize one of the first planes I was going to be on, I was going to jump out. <laughs> so I have six more takeoffs and I have landings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm, there's a lot of people that jumped a lot more than I have, and God bless them, I love them, because yeah. I don't have to do it anymore. I've right. done my six. So, so while we were in school, though, they said, hey, would you guys consider going to Italy? And we looked at the globe, like, you know, remember they had those old globes oh, that yeah, spun around? absolutely. So we looked at the globe and said, hey, wait a minute, Italy's south of Germany. Well, let's do that. It looks a lot warmer there. Growing up in Florida, I'm not really a big fan of the cold. So we said, yeah, we'll take Italy. So they sent us to Italy only to find out I was an airborne post. And I was in airborne school. And so we're going through that, that experience and show up there. And yeah, it was my very first day there. My wife wasn't allowed to travel with me. So she actually literally walked me on the airplane with our daughter. Then she left. Then we take off and I land in Italy and, and you come out of the airplane and it's a, here's all the guard dogs, people with Uzis and military everywhere, barbed wire fences. And you're like, whoa, what did I just walk into? So it was a culture shock for me walking into that. And then my very first day, Larry Kilgore, my first sergeant. Remember I told you about all these people, right? Uh, yeah. I'm not going to go to everybody, but I'm just going to go there. So Larry Kilgore comes in and goes, that haircut's not going to work. Haircut? Oh, yeah. First okay. day. I mean, I've walked off the plane. That haircut's not going to work. He goes, we don't block our haircut. And to my Air Force friends out there, he goes, this is not the Air Force. We taper our haircuts. So I'm sure I'm sure that Adam Turk and some other guys, Blake Carpenter, are going to beat me up on this one. But so anyways, I walked over to the barbershop to get a haircut. And I sat down. I said, hey, first sergeant's already called. I go, okay, no, what I'd like to do, she goes, no, first sergeant's already called. And she proceeded to give me a flat top, like instantly, just ripped it right off. And there we go. So I now had a new haircut. I walked back over. He's like, yeah, we don't do middle names in the army. We do first names. So you're now Chris. Well, that was my mom's name. So I never went by my first name. I always went by middle name. And uh, so my wife shows up 30 days later. I've got pressed uniform, shine boots. I've never had that in my career. And I'm totally changed in all that process. And that gentleman to this day is why I dress the way I do, the way I, I carry myself because of that individual. Yeah. I even had an experience where many years later I was general's aide and I had two devices on my belt. They were beepers back then. And he saw it in a picture and he called me to tell me that the army regulation said one and I'd better get it right or he, cause he's watching. Wow. So I learned that there's people always watching everything you're doing and all these stories and all these experiences are things that affect me and the way I, I carry myself every day. So 
Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I haven't gone to the whole thing, but now, so that was Italy. That was just my first assignment, well, man. That well, was three years. Let me ask you this yeah. before you move on to assignment yeah. number two. Uh, what did Mrs. Croft think of the, of the new new and improved Chris Croft? <laughs> well, it took her a little while to get used to that. She's like, now, what happened to my husband? <laughs> and uh, it became a kind of a story. It, it was a while before she actually converted over, Yeah, you know, and... Uh, and then it became a neat new thing because then everybody that knew me before the army was my middle name and everybody that knew me in the army was my first name. So it's gradually transitioned. Yeah. And I bet you people couldn't even tell you what my middle name is at this point. So this has taken us back to uh, your pre-military service just for a minute, but I also meant to make the comment earlier. You said you told your roommate, the next woman I date, I'm going to marry. So clearly that worked out swimmingly well for you. Oh, absolutely. And I would venture to say you are probably one in 10,000 when I think about mentoring young people on how to map their life, telling them to marry the next person they date is probably not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that's the way to go, but yeah, it sir. was just something I just walked in my roommate and said, and I'm like, yeah. he goes, you're, you're crazy. Yeah. And... <laughs> Well, it was crazy, but it worked. It did work. And yeah. she's been great. She's been with me the whole time. We have two kids and six grandkids. We just had our sixth one born in oh, November. Congratulations. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Well, I interrupted. So back no, so, you're fine. so three years in Italy. Three years in Italy. Mm -hmm. And our daughter, you know, one of the cool things was uh, we went on a field trip there. And our daughter was in an Italian school called Nazilo. And uh, so we went on a field trip with them. And we heard this little girl in the back talking in Italian. Like, ah, oh, that sounds like our daughter, but. They, she didn't never speak Italian around us. Walk back there and it was her just going to town. She is fluent Italian, crazy. And then her, what was neat about that was when she got married, she married a, milit a guy that joined the military. And uh, she's the one that has the six kids, by the way. And then their first assignment was Vicenza, Italy as well. No way. So right back to the same spot. She went back to the same places she'd been to. And it was really just kind of a neat experience. That's cool. So, yeah. So our second assignment. These are tough assignments. I know the army doesn't sound very tough at this point because our second assignment was Hawaii. Oh my gosh. Oh, <laughs> so, uh, oh the humanity. Yeah. But they, trust me, they got their, their pound of flesh out later. <laughs> They've never got to go to those cool spots again. Yeah. But three years in Hawaii, you know, and people would say, man, did you get bored on that island? I could have stayed there 20 years and never gotten bored. There's so much to do. There's so many great people. Just the environment's wonderful. Had some good experiences with the military and uh, commanded there. And then we left there and went to, and, and this is where the kind of thing started changing because now you start getting options. Now you've been in, you know, six years. I had the opportunity to go to, to be a training with industry officer at uh, Sears and Roebuck. Hmm. They had just established a brand new logistics division and that's where I was heading. And I got diverted to go to this thing called the Military Traffic Management Command. And it was in D.C., Washington, D.C. And it happened to be a guy I met when I was a second lieutenant. I brought him in. He came to do a speech and I was his escort officer. And I had worked with him and talked to him and taken care of him in that whole trip of uh, like four days. And in those four days, we established a relationship. That, that gentleman is Roger Thompson Jr., West Point class. He, he went to West Point and then he uh, went to Vietnam as field artillery and then changed over to transportation. He was now making his second star and he hired me to be his general day. And, uh, you know, I never forget it. He called me on the first day. He goes, hey. You just, as long as you remember, I wear the stars, you wear the bars, we're going to be good. <laughs> and I know Travis has heard me say that quite a few times and, and some experiences. And he, he's just, he, he's a super professional guy, always wants to think and be a part of the process and never be, be a problem to the process. And just 
again, another gentleman that took me under his wing and he's the one that started me on this, this program that I've done now is about how everybody that I work with or, or I'm around talk about a 10 year plan. What is your 10 year plan? How are you going to get there? How can I help you achieve that? And that's how you also get people to understand where they're at and what they see in themselves. And uh, so we did that. And then he taught me my, he had me read my first really big book where I had to explain myself. It was 1200 pages, once an eagle. Mm. And uh, I've now read that book three times and, and we, we've talked about it a ridiculous amount of times. And uh, so I was his aide for three years. And I joke about that because I say that, you know, most people do a general's aid job one time, one year. And I'm a slow learner, so it took me three years to learn what most people learned in a year. But but it, truly, I was with him there. We traveled probably 250 days out of our thir- first 365. We were all around the world. His command was everywhere. And then I left there and went to the Pentagon. And in the Pentagon, I had some incredible experiences there. I worked in the Strategic Mobility Division. And, you know, we were talking earlier a little bit about that. You know, one of the things that happened there was this thing called the Mobility Requirements Bottom-Up Review, MRS Buru. And uh, because, you know, we do acronym well in the army. Of course, I will tell you, I'm sitting over there in that building and uh, I hear an awful lot of acronyms. In fact, I heard my first whole sentence the other day in acronyms. I thought that was pretty impressive. And by the way, it was an engineer. Uh, Uh, Of course it was. (laughs) Of course it was. So, so, but that study (laughs) was all about the infrastructure, right? When we went into war in the desert storm, we had a lot of infrastructure failures. Our rail stations weren't, our rail yards weren't working well. We didn't have enough rail cars. Our ports weren't you know, doing the best. We didn't have enough equipment there. It was just a lot of things that were problem in the shipping. And that's where I also learned about the Jones Act and many other things. But, you know, and, and I got to go around the country. And it's amazing in that time, just going around and seeing. And I'm pretty sure that we got to go to Fort Riley and see what it was they were trying to do. And now to get to go back there and see Fort Riley and how it is, it's pretty amazing that everything that was visualized is now real and if you look at, there's only two divisions that are actually in the interior part of the United States. It's the first and the fourth. And they can only be there to be reflective, to go either direction because of the infrastructure that we have. And that was all because of that study and all because we had those failures back in the 90s that we had to fix. And kudos to everybody that was involved in that process. It was a long process. I wasn't involved in it that long. I was only a short period, but man, very impactful experience. Um, to listeners... Chris and I had lunch before the podcast and got to chat about a lot of this stuff. And I shared with you one of the first comparisons that came to my mind. And it really surprised me that you said you had never thought of it in that context. But you were doing sort of a stem to stern review of how military equipment and resources will be transported and transferred across different modalities The first thing I thought of was Eisenhower's, you know, famous and and to some extent, really the first time it had happened here in America, commissioned to do that same sort of study, which of course led to the interstate highway system. That's right. And and yet you said you'd, even after working in it so many years, that you'd never really thought of it in that parallel before. No, I didn't, but it was a great great thought you had. But but it's so true. Yeah. But I guess because we already had the infrastructure of the roads. Where he was doing it from scratch, yeah, right? He was. And that was kind of unique. Yeah, ours was about how do you rebuild what's already there, which sometimes can actually offer some very different challenges. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's the way we've always done it. Well, how do we not do it the way we've always done it, and how do we do it better in the future? So there was there was some of that in there, and yeah, but yeah. I, 
Yeah, he's Eisenhower. By the way, is pretty impressive. He, oh yeah, yeah what a what a treasure. Not yeah. to not to especially de- for our state. Not to derail us right. here. Pun half intended while we're talking about <laughs> rail transport. But the last podcast we did was with the Eisenhower Presidential Library in Abilene. And oh wow! Yeah, that is that is cool. As a matter of fact, if I'm going to be burning up tape here, when people would rather be listening to you, but I have to tell you one story that I hope the inter- listeners will find interesting too. So we went and visited them and did a podcast and we got a great tour of the place. It's just been renovated. So it's spectacular. And even if you've, somebody has been there before, it's worth going again, but they have all these exhibits. And one of them is a, a big poster board, very famous photo, which I'm sure you've seen. He's with the paratroopers the day before D-Day visiting with a guy. He's got the camo paint on his face and, and Eisenhower has his hands in the air. And what we know now, but didn't know until decades after was, you know, who was that paratrooper and what were they talking about and everything. And it's just amazing. The exhibit itself was cool because they had the actual uniform that the paratrooper was wearing in that picture. But what was really cool was how they got it. And I, I still can't get my head around how this happened. They were just doing some random tour on some random Tuesday in 1988 or something, pre-internet, you know, pre-website before somebody could go and check and see are they open or are they closed for renovations or whatever. And that paratrooper who had remained anonymous even while the photo had exploded and become very famous lived in, I think, Michigan or something like that, gotten his... 1977 Oldsmobile or whatever and drove all the way down to Abilene, Kansas, got in line, you know, paid $2 or whatever and joined the tour group, went all the way through it. And at the end, as the people at the museum were bidding them all goodbye, he said, oh, hey, just by the way, that's me. And I've still got the uniform if you want it. And by the way, he was talking to me about fly fishing. That's why he had his hands up in the air like he was casting. But how, I mean, just how crazy is that? You know, they didn't find it at an auction or through an internet search or whatever. Literally, the old guy just got in his car from Michigan and drove all the way down and casually mentioned to him at the end of the tour, I'm the paratrooper in that, you know, incredibly famous photo. But anyway. No, that's crazy. I mean, but. A lot of that happens. It happens a lot. Yeah. You know, it's amazing how many times you run into somebody who hey, do you happen to know? Well, as a matter of fact, I do. Yeah. You know, we are in the same unit. We talk sometimes here is that, you know, there's some other folks that are in this building that we work with that I was actually in combat with. You know, Barker, Judge Barker and I were in Italy at the, right about the same time. In fact, he had Barker there and he had David French came in between. And then I was there that overlapped with David French in Vicenza, Italy at the same time. I'll be darned. We didn't know each other then, but I mean, it happens longer than you think. Yeah. John, yeah John, crazy. John has extraordinary stories to tell about Italy. Yes, he does. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He does. Many of which may not be uh, podcast eligible. <laughs> <laughs> I won't, I, I won't do, say one way or the other. Right. I'll just leave it alone. <laughs> so, okay. So I think to pick back up, I, I derailed us a little bit That's there, right. but time three years with the General's Aid and the Strategic Transportation right. Study. And so I was in the Pentagon, did that. Actually, one of the nice things is we were talking to was, so I got to do a presentation because again, my skill set is about strategic mobility. 
and I did a presentation on strategic dominant maneuver, our ability to project forces into combat directly in and influence and using the nation's power, right? You know, we talk about what are the nation's power. It's the dime, right? Diplomacy, information, military, and economics. So you only use the military when you have to use them, but when it's time to use them, you need to use them. And they yeah. need to be able to get to the fight. That's the difference between us and others is we have the ability to get to the fight because of our infrastructure, because of the, the shipping, the airplanes, and everything else that we have. That's what's different about all of us right now. And so I gave a presentation on that. That presentation book is still is in my office right now because it was many years later, I went to my boss, who was a three-star general, and he handed me this book and goes, hey, by the way, I was in the back of that room when you gave that presentation. Good job. But and, this is years later. Oh, it was, it was easily 20 years later. He gave me that book. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was definitely 20 years later. That's a cool moment. It was a cool moment. And he was a, he's a great boss, another good mentor to me who just recently retired. And, you know, of course he, he, he likes coach K, so that's not a good thing around here. I get that, but uh, that's the only negative part, but I get it. Coach K's retired. We have to find a detente there at some point. (laughs) That's right. And then, so anyway, so then I left the Pentagon and the general picked up his third star and I went with him to Scott Air Force Base. And you know what they always say about the Air Force is they build out their golf courses first, the the housing and the officers clubs or the clubs, and then they don't have enough money for the runway, and then they ask for more. Oh. But here's what I'll tell you: you are going to catch hell from some of oh, your. Oh no, I say these stories there. all the time, so they know. <laughs> but the point is, it's true. They have the best housing; they're incredible, <laughs> and uh, and so that was probably the best house we lived on in, in, in our entire career. It was really a super place, and it's also the only. Other than Fort Leavenworth, it's the only place our house still exists. Huh. All the other places have been torn down and redone because they were so bad. This one was, it, it's still there. Our time at Scott Air Force Base was incredible. It was a good place and amazingly how much they have that that's the hub of the Air Force in its understanding of, of how they, all their airframes and where they're flying. Right there at Scott Air Force Base and they do it right there. Always do it right. And we had a great time doing that job there. Got to do that for a year. And then, and then I transition, transitioned over into an initiatives group where it was all about what is the strategy of the future? How do we need things to be? And how do we develop a plan to get there? So all of these things about me has been about that strategy part of it and looking at the bigger picture of things and how do the pieces and parts fit together and to make that strategy of the future. So don't just come... It's not just about this one-off this or one-off that. It's, okay, that's great, but how does it fit in the overall scheme? And if it doesn't fit in the scheme, then maybe we ought to hold off. So that's what I learned in that job. And then I left from there, and that's just where I got associated with Kansas. I had come, I came here for a Command and General Staff College for my first year of school. And that was in 99 to 2000. So that's when the dreaded, you know, it's Y2K, what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. And the next morning I woke up and went right back to school and kept going, right? right? No, no big deal. And then I got offered to stay at a second year and go to the School of Advanced Military Studies. So that's where I got my master's degree. And it's a full year of study of strategy. And it, it was more at the operational level, but it's still about the strategy and how do you make things fit together? And why do, how do you find the problems and try to solve the problems? And they're always not one and one. Like a problem doesn't always have a simple solution. Sometimes it has five or six. And then what are the key nodes that you need to attack to get those things to make the problem get resolved? And it's not always a frontal assault on it. Sometimes you have to approach it from the side. So that's what we learned in that whole year. And we basically read a book a day for an entire year. And uh, it was an intense year. I will tell you that that was very intense for me, but it changed my life on things. I'm so happy that I was told to go do that. It threw me off my 10-year plan. Yeah. 
but it ended up making my 10-year plan perfect. So this is not a loaded question. Don't feel like you have to say yes, but did you start to fall in love with Kansas at that time? Oh, we had a great time in Kansas. My daughter got her first horse here. They, My wife and daughter, they were riding, doing rodeos and competitions. And and uh, so they had a great time. My daughter met her husband here, much to my chagrin at the time. <laughs> I wasn't real happy about it, but you know, it's like a dad, right? right. So, you know, you're like, yeah, that's nice. No. Uh, my daughter learned to drive here. I put her on the back. We were out on one of the gravel roads and I put her on a hill. She, we had a stick shift car, made her learn how to drive a stick shift, work with the hills and everything else. So there's a lot of positives for us here in Kansas. And so, yeah, I would say that's when we'd cool. You know, everybody always knows you want to come to Kansas for CGSE, but you're thinking about it from a school perspective. But from a personal perspective, you know, it's all those other things. This is the year that most people get to spend a year with their family, they don't get to spend time with. That's one huge thing right now today that many of these folks have deployed multiple times. This is the first time they get to spend some family time. The other thing that's kind of neat up here about Leavenworth is that you have all all these international officers. And so they come here and they, they study with us and they do things and they go on to be leaders in their country, but they learn about America and they learn America based off Kansas because they're in Kansas all the time. They get to do little trips here and there, but every day. So what they believe and know about America is Kansas America. That's what it is. And that's that's kind of a cool experience. That's and when you start dark, realizing yeah. that, that is, yeah. No doubt. Yeah. I will say, too, as a lifelong born and raised Kansan and a darn proud one at that, it is, in some ways, you know, I love my fellow Kansans that, like me, are, are born and raised and died in the wool. But in some ways, it's almost even cooler when somebody's here because they choose to be, you know, somebody that was born and died in the wool somewhere else and then came here and saw what Kansas is all about. Says, this is where I choose to be. Right. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, we, we definitely chose it here and we love it. Yeah. You know, the people are great. I, 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 this is what I say. The people are great. They are. We have great infrastructure. We don't have any traffic. I love that part. Well, say, say that again. We have great what? infrastructure yes we do i could hear i could listen to you say that all day long well listen i I mean when we were driving around for the for the election and stuff like that um we were driving on on gravel roads at 65 miles an hour i can't drive on some of the other roads in these neighboring states at 65 without blowing a tire and and you know all kidding aside let it not be unsaid that we do have great infrastructure but as you know and but i can't miss the opportunity to say doesn't happen by accident. We right. have had decades of thoughtful policymakers that made hard choices to invest in that and make that become a reality. We are incredibly blessed in Kansas in that regard. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, and I would also encourage, though, as you're looking out for where we are, you can't be satisfied with where we're at. Never. You got to be looking at the future. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. I mean, we've got the electric cars we've got to worry about. you got the you got the, uh, the vehicles that may have no drivers, right? Yep. How do you deal with that? What yep. are all the processes? But then again, what's the next step? What's the next transportation structure here? You know, we've talked about high-speed rail. We're a natural place for the center part of high-speed rail. You know, yeah. it's something we ought to think about, you know, especially as the ships have become so big, they can't go through the Panama Canal. And I know the Panama Canal is widening, it's doing its thing. And it is a very narrow, but to download there and cross the, the country and back on the other side, that's more difficult than it is here. Why can't you use the United States and its great structure? Yeah. There's opportunities here. We just, again, we got to get unify on these things and come together and make it happen. 
Well, let me ask sorry, you. I got if you way were, off no, track. No, no, I, I think I led you off track. But before I, I, you know, use up all our good time, bring us to the conclusion of your military service. So you've gone through all there, the Strategic Transportation Initiative, right. Times of the General's Age, the Command College at Leavenworth, two years, finishing your master's. What was the last chapter? Well, I mean, so just real quick, I'll run through it. So we left here, went down to Fort Hood, and that's where we deployed to Iraq. So that was the last time we've actually no notice deployed a heavy division. And that's where I got to use all those assets that, that were talked about in the MRS Buru. So we used the 35 ships that are part of the ready reserve force that are laying around. We used all the rail infrastructure. We put elements from Kansas down in there into, into Texas. So it left there. I spent a year in Iraq during the initial invasion, came back, and then was basically, I, it was time to leave for a little bit. And a lot of people stayed. I, I, I needed to get away for a little while. So I went to Washington, D.C. and worked with training with industry. So it's where an army or an active duty guy gets to go spend a year in a company. So I remember my first day there, I was there at 6.30, nobody was there, the doors were locked. I had, <laughs> what the heck? I'm like, there's a gym. So anyways, the doors opened around 7.30. I get inside, I go to the gym, get up to my office at 8.30. Boss comes in at 9, we have a meeting schedule. He goes, okay, great, welcome aboard. Here's what I want you to get done. I go, okay, great, start working on it. About that afternoon, we finished it, turned it in. He's like, yeah, you got nothing else to do for the next two weeks, so... Go figure it out. It was a great experience to also learn how you also got to pace yourself too. You got to learn how to slow it out a little bit and take a bigger picture because what I had turned in at the beginning and then what he made me return in at the end was not the same. Mm. And that was the whole point of this thing is sometimes slowing down will give you an opportunity to see the bigger picture. And you can, it isn't always about the speed if you're going, right? It's not about move, motion. It's about movement. And so I thought that was very important to me. And then left there after 10 months, Got selected for command and went to Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And that's where I deployed a second time. So I got to deploy there as a battalion commander of a National Guard battalion. So that was kind of different for an active duty guy. And all my guys were combat arms. We had talked a lot about that experience. It was enlightening to me at how much experience is sitting in the National Guard structure that you don't even think about. Just a quick story. We had our vehicles had to have fabrication shops. If something hit them, you had to send it to a fabrication shop. It took several months to get it back. One day, we just happened to walk in, as you talk about the Eisenhower story, happened to walk in the right motor pool. And I said, hey, by the way, does anybody in here have a clue about fabrication? And one of the guys, stand, he was an E-Force, says, well, I actually own a fabrication shop in California. This guy's never going on the road again. <laughs> so we put him in the shop and he fixed all our vehicles. Now, you know, I guess it's on radio now. It's not good, but it, it's past the time. So anyways, we fixed the vehicles and off they went. And we never had another down one because of that capability. So... There's so much there and yeah. just, I can tell you, we can do this podcast for days about the, the heroics and the greatness of the individuals that, that were in my formations. They were, they're incredible people, not because they were in my formation, but I know it because they were in my formation. Yeah. Many of those guys, those folks were people that I, I look up to and what they were able to do in, in the, in the line of fire, carrying bodies through bullets, bouncing all around them and just doing things that just, just will boggle your mind. So anyways, left there, came back and ended up in Washington, D.C. again. And I was there at the Human Resources Command where we actually assign people and work on their development of their careers, which fit right in with my 10-year plan, came back, did that, moved it to Fort Knox, Kentucky. We literally moved the entire command and nobody knew we moved it because that was the game plan. I mean, it was physically announced, but the, the actual movement people didn't know. 
because the way we were able to echelon the process and make sure it worked. It was that time my son was a college football player and he had won a state championship while I was gone. But, uh, but so he was playing college football right near there. And so I got to see my son play ball and my daughter get married and have all the kids. And so as we were leaving that place, I got to go to New York City for a, a one-year fellowship at Columbia University. Very eye-opening experience. And then from there, I got to compete to be the of the Army's leadership center right here at Fort Leavenworth, and and I was the I was the underdog. I wasn't supposed to even be in the the fix in the in the fight because I was I didn't command at a brigade level, and I won the job. Part of it was because that story I told you about that briefing, and uh, so I got to do that job for four years, go around the world teaching about leadership and setting up leadership centers with our our allies, and. I've, like you said, I mean, we spent our last five years in the military right here in Kansas. So we've spent the most time of our career actually in Kansas. Hmm. And uh, the house there was a beautiful house. It's right on the river. It's an old 1908 home. Um, but yeah, Kansas is just great. It's got to be pretty cool, too, there at Leavenworth to think of the footsteps you're walking in. Oh. I mean, the, the names that have gone through there, it's just humbling. It very much it is. has to be. Yeah. And especially, they take a good time to teach you about the history of them. Yeah. So you get to sit down, especially when we went to SAMS, School of Military Studies. They, they spent a lot of time teaching us about leaders and, and working through that and making sure we understood the history. So, so that's a, a... Sorry, I didn't make it very short, did I? Oh, no, I didn't want you to. I mean, that's a fascinating story. It's just more interesting than most of us have to tell about our careers and, and obviously appreciate your service. And it's a tremendous commitment to the country and a tremendous demand on the family. And it's a story worth taking time to tell. Uh, but with that, I will maybe segue us, you know, I mentioned earlier, it is so cool when somebody chooses Kansas to be the forever home. And you obviously did that when you got out of the military for good. And when you moved here permanently or moved into, you know, your civilian home or whatever you call it, take me from there up to the moment you decided to run for the legislature, but stop there. Did you have other elected offices that you held? Did you have any causes that kind of pulled you into the policy sphere? Or were you just kind of living a blissful life outside of that whole orb? What, what did your life look like right up until you decided to run for office yes. for the legislature? Yeah, so it, it actually did cross a little bit. All right, so I left my job. I was still in the Army for six months. And so they have a program where you can go out and experience businesses and do things. The program was just underway, right? So I didn't really get into the, what I wanted, but I got the opportunity to spend time getting my health stuff squared away because we don't typically take care of all that stuff. It's, you don't want to do any of that. You want to just we'll do your job. So I left the job one August and then I was retiring one February. And so I still had work to do, but I didn't have my job to do. I had other things. And in the process, I had never thought about going into politics and, and in, in the policy side of things. It's public service, absolutely. been doing that my whole life. That's what I love to do. I happened to go to this breakfast. It was a, uh, an accelerant breakfast. It was a meet and greet. It was a networking breakfast. And one of the gentlemen I sat with, he looks over at me after about 10 minutes of talking. His, his name is Christian. And I looked over and he goes, hey, have you ever thought about going into politics? I'm like, no. I haven't thought about it. not going to think about it. It's time, you know, I'm going to leave this area and we're going to do something else. So anyways, we're talking. The next month came by. We're at the same breakfast. And he goes, you thought about it some more? 
I'm like, no, I'm, I'm seriously just trying to get myself taken care of the arm. Because in the army, look, I did not pay attention to that stuff. In fact, if you look at the old days, they talked about why do you vote? You know, I think you should vote. And, and I think the army came around to that process because we didn't want to be political, right? But you still have, you're still a citizen. You still have a right to vote. And so in that process there, you know, it's important, but it was never one that I thought that I would be, should be coming over here. I thought it was left for others. Yeah. And then, you know, a couple of months into this process, he convinced me to come. And so we started talking more and more about it. So then I said, you know what? I'll just love to help somebody out. That's all I want to do is help somebody's campaign and just kind of work through that process. And so as it went more and more along, as I was transitioning, we were looking, you know, we have family in Virginia, you know. South Carolina, Florida, Mississippi, all over the place. And we were like, where do we want to live? And we kept coming back to here. And quite frankly, I was at the VA. My wife had saw this house on, on Zillow. And many folks have heard me tell this story. And my phone was blowing up. And I didn't answer because I was in the dock. And I come out and I call my wife. She says, hey, by the way, I've been trying to get you. I'm like, I know I was in the dock. She goes, well, oh, it's okay. We just bought the house. <laughs> so I didn't see the house. Didn't know where it was, didn't know anything about districts, had no clue. Just that it was a house in Kansas she was happy with. I was happy. Happy wife, we're good. So, plus, we've been together so long, she knows what I like in a house, and I know what she likes in a house, and so it, it worked out. It was a wonderful place, and it still is a wonderful place. And we, so, anyways, we settled in there and then started thinking more and more about it, and, and it just became something that was real to me. It was about an opportunity to continue to serve because I've done it for so long. It's just in a different realm and the ability to bring what I learned in the military into this environment seemed natural to me. And truly in this process, it has been natural, but it, you told me to stop there. So I'll stop. <laughs> so, okay, fair I'm enough. to follow instructions. <laughs> so now you are, you, you've crossed the Rubicon and you've warmed up to the idea of, of running. Was the state legislature the first place your mind went or the first opportunity that availed itself to you? Well, I mean, it was one of the first places that was presented to me. Uh, who, who had the seat at the time? Patty Markley. Okay. For the house that I'm in. Honestly, when I started looking, it wasn't about a seat. It was about where yeah. and what to do. And so, you know, naturally for me in the military, I really love garrison commanders. They're great because they have to work with our communities. They work because, you know, bases are pretty much a closed city, right? And I always thought a mayor would be kind of a neat job because just what you have to do. So that was actually my first and my first thought was maybe the mayor. And then I started looking into it and, and then the other things. And so it just kind of naturally settled into this. It made the most sense for what my experience factor was. Maybe that made one day down the road or something. I don't know. But that's how we kind of leaned into that. So you ran in 2018. Were elected, you were elected and sworn in in 2019, which would make this your fifth session, right? Right. You've stood election three times now. And li a lot of our listeners may know this, but your career, pretty quick, if you look comparatively speaking, into the leadership position you're in now, you in a five-year period, you went from being, you know, the 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 truest of freshmen, you know, backbenchers, getting your feet wet, to, you know, the second highest elected post over there as House Majority Leader. How has your career as a legislator changed in that transition from, I don't want to say rank and file legislator, that sounds a little pejorative, but you know what I mean, you know, into more senior roles and then eventually into House Majority Leader? Well, yeah, 
<clears throat> so I'll tell you, again, I think coming into this process, the military taught me well, right? You go in there in the first 30 days, you, you immerse yourself into the job and you learn the process first. If you get all the process down, you get the terminology down, you get the things down, then you can go out and do your job. And then it's important that you have some people along the way that kind of mentor and guide you. And, and I feel like that's what's happened in this process. And by the way, although I've moved pretty fast in this, there are people that move really fast in this process. I'm not the fastest in this. I'm just, you know, there's, it's also, there's so many factors that go into it. And I'm so fortunate to be in that process, in this situation where I'm at right now. When I came in, I did not have a lot of experience in this arena. But then I had two mentors pick me right up. Barker was one of them. Stephen Johnson's another one. You can, I can name about three or four others that have kind of just sat me down and said, okay, Ron Hyland, all these guys sat me down and said, okay, let me teach you this process. And then Johnson was my first one that made me do something. Steve. He walked up, Stephen Johnson yeah. walked up and he says, hey, there's an amendment I want done on this bill. I get with these folks and um, we'll see you over there. You come back in in five minutes. Oh, that happened to be with this organization with Sandy. Oh, and how she funny. And we did it over the top uh -uh. of a garbage can outside. <laughs> and we're writing the bill up <laughs> at the most. So it was a conceptual am amendment and Stephen Johnson allowed it in there. And, uh, and so I, they helped me draw it all out. I wrote it all out, made sure I had exactly the right statements to make. And I walked inside, sat down. He goes, you good? I'm like, yes, Mr. Trey. He goes, all right, go. And then I, you know, went through the process and got done. And that was my first experience of doing that. And, and that was early on. I mean, that was within my first, what, three weeks. So, or four weeks. So again, it's, I've, I've been very fortunate in this process. I've had people that have taken me out of the wing and teach me to teach me things. I try to maintain an open mind in this whole process. No matter if I agree or disagree with you, I, I want to, and, and I'll tell you, there's been some, I'll tell you, Alan Cobb and I, we're ready to go at it one day on uh, some bill. And uh, I got on a bus with him and I said, we're going to have, I wouldn't let anybody on. We're going we're to have it out right now. And I walked out of there about 10 minutes later going, wow, I hadn't thought about all that stuff. And again, it's about people willing to take the time to talk to you about stuff and just show you the other side of it. And, but you also have to be the one that has an open mind. You have to be willing to listen to it and be willing to change your mind if that's, that's appropriate. Now there's certain things I'm not going to change my mind on. I'm right. pretty I'm pretty set on some of my my beliefs and sure. where I'm at. So I'm not. Those are non-negotiable things. Well, a couple thoughts there. First, you know, Chris, if you didn't already know, here at Braden Heidner Low, we do some of our best work on the top of trash cans. <laughs> That's uh, you use the tools that you have. Hey. Uh, but, it's a memorable experience, yeah, you know. That's actually pretty cool. Not only that, you know, it was your first with somebody that's a partner here at our shop, but yeah, that's all pretty cool. Your comment about an open mind, I want to ask you a couple of questions specific to your role as majority leader now, but there's a, a saying, and you've probably heard it, but I just think it is so, so clever and true. The vast majority of people, in my experience, in the legislature, they genuinely do aspire to have an open mind. You know, most of them, if you can get to them and if you can bring good data, most of them, you know, are receptive to that and they, they just want to do the right thing. But for those few that are just, you know, obstinate or whatever, there are a few people, not just in the Kansas legislature, but everywhere in the world, they're the kind of people, the old saying is they use data and facts the way a drunk uses a lamppost, you know, only for support, not for illumination. And I always thought that was such a clever way to say that and it's true you know people that are trying to do well 
they use that lamppost for illumination. They use data to reach the right decision. But there are some people that just want to cherry pick the data and use that lamppost as support, you know, and not learn. Anyway, let's move on. So your time as majority leader now. We've plucked you early for this podcast. You've only been in the job a few weeks now, so still many experiences yet to be had. But having said that, what's the most interesting part about being majority leader so far? And are there things that our listeners would be surprised to know come with the territory of being majority leader? Well, okay. Because I would tell you, you know, getting back to your first comment there about the people, mm-hmm. would tell you one of the most interesting things I found, and it's not just because of this job, but remember I was also the RHCC chair. So I got to do a lot of things that were more than just worrying about my district. It's the incredible diversity of experiences that are sitting in that building and the, the thoughts and just getting the opportunity to sit down and talk to people. I wish we actually had more time. That's some of the frustrating part is that we're only here for such a short time and we don't get to spend a lot of time together. Can I interrupt you yeah. and offer a thought to to your exact point? I didn't say it earlier, but when you were talking about what a treasure it is with your National Guard units and the expertise you find to your surprise within the unit, the thought I had at that moment is it's not entirely dissimilar to what you find over here at the Capitol. Exactly right. And that's yeah. what I was saying. I mean... I would tell you, my military experience prepared me well for this. Yeah. You know, in the military, you don't get to, and, and, and as far as that relates to this job, you don't get to pick your team. You just have to accomplish mission with your team. Well, I, th- this team is picked by the people as, as it should be. And we have to work together as a team to get there. That's why we've been talking about one team for the last four years, right? And that for me has been the, the most fun about the whole process. And in the job now, I'm kind of freed up from worrying about one bill or two bills for me. And now I get to worry about things for everybody. And that's the part that I've been transitioning to try to make sure I do well is now how do I see all the different things that are going out there and how you start putting them together and making things work together and helping people get their mission accomplished that they're trying to do for the people of Kansas. That's why I love the better way, the commitment we've created is not about five or six leadership bills anymore. This is about we set a framework listening to everybody around the state what did they have to say and how then we put that into eight areas and everything that's coming in. We have, what, 205 bills, I think, right now and how they're fitting in every one of those categories. There's a couple that don't fit quite, and you know, but they're all pretty much right in there. And we are, this is how we're going to hold ourselves accountable to what we're doing to the people of Kansas, doing for the people of Kansas. And, and it's just, it, that to me is a lot of my excitement and how we can start focusing that effort back on the people. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. And then you had talked to me, one of the other things we had talked about is what's the, one of the differences, or is that mm-hmm. what you're about to ask? Oh, no, fire away, yeah. Well, no, just one of the differences I've experienced. You know, I'm used to sitting in my office, w- reading about my, you know, focusing on what I got to get down on my bill, ready to go. Oh, man, I got five minutes. I walk upstairs and I get the chance to walk through as, you, as we talked about the, the gauntlet, if you will, right. or whatever. It's actually, for me, fun. I enjoy talking to everybody out there. In fact, usually I'm late getting in because I'm sitting out there talking. And hey, do you uh, mind if I interrupt just long yeah, enough? I, I want to make sure listeners know what it is you're talking about. So for when you are a, a, a legislator, not in leadership, right? And you have an office in the, you know, the main area between your office and getting into the chamber, right? that's where all of we lobbyists <laughs> lurk and loiter and lay in wait and ambush and whatever. 
And so what what you're saying, which I appreciate, and I want to make sure listeners know, yeah, is too. is that you always embraced that. Absolutely. You, you looked forward to that. Well, because honestly, that's where, you know, a lot of times you'll sit there and say, oh, you know, I couldn't find you. Let's talk real quick. And uh, you get to learn a bit piece of information. That That's the hardest part about this job is getting all the right, all the information that's out there. And it changes so fast. And there's little things that change here that can completely unhinge a bill. And it's important to know those things like, oh, by the way, hey, this is coming up or that. I really enjoyed it. I wish I actually would spend more time out there. But now that I'm on the other side where I'm coming in from the other angle, I miss that because now I'm focused on, I've got a mission to do in the chamber. And so sometimes now I try to walk out there, but then it's a matter of time. So this is, it's, it's a learning process. Yeah. I think that was probably the most interesting thing that I've had in this experience right now. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And I, I do think, you know, whether you're in corporate America or the military or the Kansas legislature, to some extent, you know, the more senior you become, it, it gets harder to have that exposure in time with what I'll call, you know, the masses you have to almost be more intentional about it. Whereas, you know, when you're a rank and file legislator, it comes to you. When you're in leadership, you almost have to make an effort to go to it. Well, you, absolutely. I mean, and that's what, you know, in the military, we call it leadership by walking around, mm-hmm. right? And so I do that. I try to do that. I, I block time on the calendar every day to walk around, see folks. I have, you know, not getting as well out there as I wanted to. The other thing that I've had to learn is 15-minute meetings, Right. I love to get in and just chit chat about stuff and I could do that for an hour. And, <laughs> and so I've got to get serious about where they're going and get to the point fast. Yeah. And so we can get on to the next thing because there's a, just so much to do. That's where a diligent and time sensitive chief of staff becomes worth his weight in platinum. Uh, that's for sure. I feel, <laughs> I feel pretty fortunate there. Oh, <laughs> uh, listeners were laughing because his chief of staff, Travis Grauerholtz is sitting at the table <laughs> with us. So we're, we're talking about him right in front of him. Well, that is all, you know, it's always great to hear the perspective and the stories from folks in a leadership role, and, and yours is extremely interesting, too, with the the background and the story that you have that you brought to it. But let me wrap up with some things totally unrelated to your career or your time in the legislature, all about Chris Croft, the person. Were you to ever have the illusory free day or free time? Mm. What kind of hobbies? And, and you can't say family or something that has to do with work this has to literally about you if you were taking some you time what what type of activities would you enjoy Mm. well i like to golf Mm -hmm. you know but then again i like to golf with my wife so that you know that's who i'd rather play golf with but yeah i mean it's just getting around and, and i'll tell you what one of the things i love to do is I like to go shopping on Black Friday and on Christmas Eve you're kidding oh i love it oh my gosh yeah holy cow yeah I do. <laughs> yeah, my wife did something insane. So. so let me ask you, is it, uh, and maybe it's both, but it, you know, is it a, the, the competition aspect of it, of, you know, I'm going to sort of get the best of the system or is it because you're such a people person, you just love standing in line and chewing the fat with every other poor sucker that's out there in the cold? Yeah. I normally don't stand in the line because okay. I'm not buying because you know what they do. They just jack the price up oh, and give yeah. you a sale price. Absolutely. So I don't feel like you're getting any benefit. Okay. I just like to go out there and see the, you know, see what all's going on. And I'd love to see the activity. Yeah. I, I, I actually, there's a lot of people that don't like groups. I love groups. So I, it's I, its own little sociology microcosm that you can enjoy. Oh, absolutely. In yeah. fact, we would go watch movies on, on the Thursday night. The, mid, the one that gets out at midnight, just so we could go out and go, my son and I would go shopping at night. My son likes to do it with me, but 
We haven't done that in a while since he's How married funny. off on doing his own thing. <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah. I can honestly say that's the first time we've received that answer <laughs> on what to do with free time. Well, your last question, we'll leave you with this. And we had a couple of good laughs over lunch talking about this. Things like books and music and movies. What would we find on the, on the Croft shelf at home? What are some of your favorites? Well, you'd find hundreds of, of leadership books just because that was the job, right? And uh, But you wrote down one, I mentioned earlier, books-wise, Once an Eagle. Mm-hmm. Really good book about, you know, dependable where you are, what your focus should be as a leader. The other one I love about the book is a logic of failure. It's sometimes to understand that things fail today because of decisions made 30 years ago and why the importance of making sure the decisions you make today are ones that will test the time for 30 years. You know, you hear that a lot about, well, we'll do trailer this, trailer that. No, I I don't like to do that. I like to consider things, slow down. That's what bureaucracy is about. It isn't supposed to be fast. Sometimes it's meant to be a little bit slow, so you think about things. And that's the value of that book. Um, and I love, you know, th- we have some books that we, we did in the, in the military talking about our uh, parachute jumpers into the fires. Oh, the guys are incredible. Yeah. Those folks are incredible. Not just guys, just folks are incredible that go in and do that. And yeah, so just learning how they live with things and do things was pretty powerful to me. So that's the book wise. And I got a lot more books. We could talk about books forever too. <laughs> and then you just say music and movies. Mm-hmm. I did. So music wise, ACDC, my yes, big one. Yes, yeah. that's out. Damn. A little bit of Def Leppard, like country as well. A lot of the, you know, old country, but some of the new country's good too. You know, I'll you're, go with that. You're more forgiving than I am. Well, you know, we, as we were talking, you know, I, we, we joke about this because when we take trips in the car, because we drive a lot, we don't fly a lot. We drive because we have a puppy. My wife and I like to be in the car together. It's our time together. She could name artists all the way through talking country artists. And I can't even name, like I could, they, my son and my wife would pick on me because I was, you know, terrible. I couldn't, <laughs> even if they gave me two hints and I still get it <laughs> Jeez, I'm terrible. Well, you know uh, what you like when you hear it. You don't have to know the name. That's right. And then, in fact, I probably don't even know the words, to be honest with you. And then movies-wise, for me, Gladiator, the 300. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 300 came out when we went to Iraq the second time as a battalion commander. So that was um, one of my favorites. Of course, then Monty Python, Quest for the Holy Grail, kind of hilarious. That's awesome. So uh, so in the movie 300, I'll tell you my favorite line in that movie, It's it's not one of the the big three that people quote all the time, but I love it when he's coming, he's menacing these guys and he says, our arrows will blot out the sun. The guy just real calmly says, then we will fight in the shade. Shade. I love that. Oh, it's the greatest line. Yeah. Love it. There's a lot of really good lines in there. There absolutely are. Yeah. Yeah. If I actually had a good voice like you did, I probably could have uh, quoted some of those things and made made videos, but. (laughs) We, that's all right. We spent enough, Travis and I spent enough of your discretionary time at lunch quoting movies already we i think we used up our allotment yeah <laughs> well speaking of that i don't know how long we've been going but i'll bet you a nickel it's longer than i told travis to to schedule you for so i sure do appreciate your patience and and taking all this time to share your story it's been a blast to have you on the program well i appreciate it thanks it's you know i don't get a lot of time to talk about my family i love my wife she's great yeah. She's been through thick and thin with me, you know, all those moves in the military and gave up her career for me and for what we do for this country. And so I could never give her enough and enough praise and my kids just going around and doing the stuff they've done and what they're doing now. My, my son-in-law is a police officer, former military guy. My daughter's a, a trained nurse, but takes care of the kids. And then my son's a scientist for the Navy for the, yeah, for the Navy. 
Cool. And yeah. Very cool. Much to be proud of. Yeah. Yeah, no Absolutely. doubt. Well, it's been a joy to have you here. Listeners, this has been State Representative and House Majority Leader Chris Croft. Thank you so much for making time. Oh, thank you. All right, listeners, thank you for tuning in. We will catch you on the next episode of the podcast. Ooh.